This summer, crime has a new enemy. And justice, a new name. Simon Garden. He was witness to a homicide. I saw a man strangle a human being. Well, an accountant. Now he's on a mission impossible. Combining all the best elements of homegrown rom-coms and gangster capers, this breathes fresh life into both genres. Caroline Westbrook, Empire Film Magazine. The film is mildly amusing and more than competently acted, but contains very little that's original and nothing that throws any light on contemporary life. Philip French, The Observer. What follows mixes the light-hearted antics of the Lavender Hill mob with such highbrow gags as Simon chundering on a roller coaster or disposing of a phallus sculpture in a lady's loo. Neil Smith, BBC Movies Online. We watch The Parole Officer. Hello and welcome to BritCon Goes to the Movies, the podcast where we examine the journeys of small screen British comedy programmes, sketches and talent to the big screen, one movie at a time. Joining me as always, he gets a couple of GCSEs and he thinks he's Anne Diamond, it's Guy Walker. And joining me this week, if rationing hadn't finished, he'd still be a spiv forging all those meat coupons, it's Rob Heath. Hello, Guy. We've gone for different programs with our uh, references there, haven't we, I think? Yeah, I think we have. This is the one I had to think about least, because I think I say gets a couple of GCSEs and thinks he's Anne Diamond pretty much at least once a week and have been doing so for the last 25 years. Well, mine was a uh, Pauline Calf quote, and yours, Ernest Moss? Yeah, Ernest Moss from Coogan's Run, episode three. So, yeah, I had to, had to go for that one. So we're going to be talking about the parole officer today, which is why we're uh, referencing so many uh, Steve Coogan television programs. I've got some facts and figures to hit you with, Guy, about the parole officer to start us off. Go for it. It was released on the 10th of August, 2001, known in France as Mr. Garden, and in Germany as Das B-Team, and in Bulgaria as Inspectorate. <laughs> wow. One, one more time. Inspectorate. Uh, Inspectorate. Uh, thank you, Eddie Walker, for that translation of the Cyrillic Bulgarian, which I can decipher on the IMDb. Uh, produced by DNA Films, the Film Council, Figment Films, and Toledo Pictures, one of those uh, uh, four production company combos there. Distributed in the UK by Universal through UIP. Its debut week, it went to number five in the UK box office behind, these are some big hitters, Guy, Cats and Dogs, Rush Hour 2, Jurassic Park 3, and Final Fantasy, The Spirits Within. Jesus Christ, what a, what a week. Uh, it's a total UK gross of £3.2 million, taking 902000 in its first week. These numbers, right, I did, a few weeks before Mike Bassett, England manager, was yeah. released. But those those are much bigger debut week numbers, yet only got to number five in the charts, whereas Mike Bassett got to... Number three? Number three, yeah. It was uh, directed by Australian director John Digan, who is the brother-in-law of Bruce Beresford. Can you name any films Bruce Beresford has directed, Guy? Bruce Beresford? No, he, I wouldn't. No, if I fell over him. He's directed Best Picture winning Driving Miss Daisy, is the one that immediately... Oh, uh, I mean, that's a shit film, so... Mm. Yeah. Wow. Anyway, brother-in-law of him. Uh, written by Steve Coogan and Henry Normal. More about them later. Uh, Rotten Tomatoes score of 57% with audience score of 63%. So kind of audiences and critics kind of on the same page. 
um, and an IMDb score of 6.3. So basically you just say the same audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. You've been looking into the Britcom credentials and connections of this film, Guy. Yeah, so obviously Steve Coogan um, starring in the role, his first feature film, well, his first lead in a feature film, I think he was in the Wind in the Willows kind of Python movie of the mid-90s. Um, but he started out as an impressionist on Spitting Image before he made the jump into character comedy with obviously Paul and Pauline Calf, which he was doing as part of his stand-up art. He was on The Day to Day, Alan Partridge, and then in the noughties, uh, Saxondale, The Trip. Film-wise, I think it's been a bit of a mixed bag. He's worked with Michael Winterbottom, including the brilliant 24-hour party people. Um, he's excellent. His stuff in Hollywood with like studio comedies with like Ben Stiller in like Tropic Thunder and Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg and the other guys is probably not as good. This might be a repeated theme throughout this podcast, Guy, and I think I might stand up for absolutely everything he's ever done, including the shit stuff. Uh, because I am an unapologetic Steve Coogan fanboy. So um, maybe that will kind of tinge how uh, the different ways in which we see this film. But um, yeah, I I mean, I do love Coogan. Lena Hede as Emma. Uh, so her work grew throughout the 90s through roles in Soldier, Soldier and Band of Gold, uh, which was about sex workers in Bradford, which is another thing that I watched when I was far too young, which... Uh, <laughs> I, I thought remember. you were going to say sex workers in Bradford is something you've had first-hand experience. So. <laughs> it's not far. Yeah. Bradford isn't far. Well, yeah, exactly. And I never, uh, never have um, frequented that element of uh, of Bradford, but I did watch Band of Gold, and I did fancy Lena Headey in that role of Colette. That's uh, Samantha Morton. That was her big break as well, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, Kay Mellors. Yeah, Samantha Morton, and uh, yeah, Lena Headey was the role of uh, Colette, and I remember. Fancying her when uh, I was probably about 10 and shouldn't have been watching Band of Gold. In my head, like she's much more of a, of a recent phenomenon, but actually she's been going for years and I forgot even that she was in this film. That's what surprised me. So I didn't realise she was in Soldier, Soldier. I'd forgotten about Band of Gold until I, until I saw it and looked at it. I'm like, oh, she's in Band of Gold. And then I clicked on the picture of her in it. And I'm like, oh God, she was Colette. I fancied Colette. So after the parole officer, she was in The Actors with Dylan Moran and Michael Caine, a film that we'll get to in due course. But her career really took off after appearing in Terry Gilliam's The Brothers Grimm and Zack Snyder's 300. She was also on TV in The Sarah Connor Chronicles, the Terminator spin-off, and of course played one of the best baddies in 21st century television with Cersei Lannister in Game of Thrones. Let's move on to Ompurious George. <laughs> um, regarded as one of the finest actors in world cinema, he's best known to UK audiences for his roles in My Son the Fanatic and, of course, East is East. He's brilliant in East is East, isn't he? Yeah. It's a great film. He was also in Hollywood films City of Joy with Patrick Swayze and Wolf with Jack Nicholson. Not that I've seen either of them. So, Rob, am I pronouncing it right? Stephen Delane? I, I, I've been going with Delane, yeah. Another uh, Game of Thrones alumnus. So he won the Tony Award for his lead role in the Tom Stoppard play The Real Thing. That was 2000 as well when he did that. So the year before he does The Parole Officer, is he's uh, winning the Tony for the uh, the Stoppard play. He was in The Hours, the Nicole Kidman film, which is very good, kind of creepy horror. Yeah, I remember him in that. Mm. Also, uh, also, Eric Sykes is in, is in The Hours. That's oh, something I always find bizarre. Yeah. 
Eric Sykes, yeah, of course. Uh, obviously, he'll, he'll probably come up in a later episode as well. Yeah, Eric Sykes, for sure. Stalwart of uh, classic British comedy. Worked with Spike Milligan on The Goons and countless other things. He was in the... Um, this is uh, Stephen Delane, not Eric Sykes, was in the trilogy of goal films. I'd love to see Eric Sykes in the, the <laughs> goal films. <laughs> Starring Eric Sykes is David Beckham. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'd have no, it won't surprise you to know, Guy, despite being a big football fan, that I've not seen the goal films. Me neither. Any of them. I've not seen any of them. Oh, but hang on. And I, do you know what? I haven't given it any thought this week, but if we want a, uh, a really tenuous connection, I'm pretty sure my dad's in one of them. I think he might be in the third one. Is he? <laughs> Is that the one where the lads goes to Real Madrid? Isn't Newcastle, Real Madrid, and then another maybe? I don't know. And then he, obviously, like you said, um, Stephen D- uh, Dillane was, a, was Stannis Baratheon in Game of Thrones, which he's excellent in. Recent films include Joe Wright's The Darkest Hour, which I felt was all the, the boring bits that weren't in Dunkirk, basically. I've, I've avoided it like the plague because it, it just sounds awful. Stephen Waddington as Jeff. He was in Derek Jarman's Edward II. He also had a supporting role in Michael Mann's Last of the Mohicans and Tim Burton's Sleepy Hollow. Uh, he was last seen in the recent Uncharted movie starring Tom Holland, where he played the role of Scotsman. Ben Miller as Colin, so he rose to fame as one half of Double Act Armstrong and Miller. He was also in Primeval with S Club 7 singer Hannah Spirit, um, which followed a group of scientists investigating prehistoric anomalies in the UK. His first feature film was The Parole Officer, and I found this interesting. He went on to being Johnny English, and I think The Parole Officer and Johnny English are quite similar. I, I, if you told me they, they were the same year, I wouldn't have been surprised, but Johnny English is like 2005. My dad's in Johnny English as well. Come on, we're on a roll here. Um, he was also in one that we, I think we mentioned this on the Mike Bassett episode, Rob, The Worst Week of My Life, which we both enjoyed, from what yeah, I remember. Yeah, loved Worst Week of My Life. Yeah, and then I've just got, one of the last things he did was Death in Paradise. I mean, he's been in so many things as Ben Miller. He's just, yeah, one of those great British character actors. Uh, yeah, the director of the film was John Digan, an Australian film director and writer, best known for autobiographical films The Year My Voice Broke and Flirting, and also the 1994 film Sirens, starring Hugh Grant, part of Hugh Grant's great 1994 run. It's a good film, Sirens, I remember, yeah. I know that was kind of his biggest film before, um, I'm talking about Digan here, that's his biggest yeah. film before Parole Officer, I guess. I've not seen it, to be fair, so... I mean, from what I can remember, it's good. It might be a load of yeah. old shite, but it's been a while. His last film was a self-funded film from 2012 called Careless Love about a university student who becomes an escort. <laughs> right. Okay. Interesting. So, yeah, Henry Normal uh, co-wrote the script with Steve Coogan. He started out on Packet of Three, part sitcom, part sketch show, which starred Henry Normal, Frank Skinner, and Jenny Eclair. He's written a lot of Steve Coogan's work, but not Alan Partridge, funnily enough, which I found interesting. He also wrote on The Fast Show, Mrs. Merton and Malcolm and The Royal Family, and co-founded Baby Cow with Steve Coogan. And then, obviously, Steve Coogan also co-wrote the film. He's obviously written a lot of his own work and was Oscar-nominated for Philomena back 2013. Yeah, I always had it in a trip where he's like, Rob, I'm, a, I'm an Academy Award-nominated writer. What are you doing? That's pretty good. 
Oh, thanks. Well, I'll keep doing the Coogan impression then. <laughs> because he is a fucking fucker. You... <laughs> That's um, one of his best characters is him playing himself in The Man Who Thinks He's It in the little interstitial moments between oh, yeah. the life. Yeah. I've seen that so many times. I'd shove six stars of his arse. <laughs> Rob, I understand that you've got some background on Steve Coogan. Uh, yeah, well, more kind of Steve Coogan and Henry Normal and how they've worked together. So as you mentioned, you know, Henry Normal wasn't a writer on Partridge, but they've been collaborating for such a long time, you know, like pre-Partridge and pre-Coogan being involved in, in anything to do with Armando Iannucci and, and Chris Morris, etc. Uh, the Parole Officer is a, another writing collaboration between Steve Coogan and Henry Normal. Henry Normal, whose real name is Peter James Carroll, uh, who at this point, they were becoming pretty prolific. Uh, they met when Steve Coogan was at Manchester Polytechnic School of Drama. At the time, there was this big grassroots movement around performing arts in Manchester, which included not only those two guys, but people like Carolina Hearn, John Thompson, Frank Skinner, uh, the members of Pulp, Lem Cisse. Um, and Lem Cisse, actually, Henry Normal and Lem Cisse went on to found the Manchester Poetry Festival together. Uh, and also Dave Gorman. Uh, Normal, who began his performance career as a poet, has now gone back to that, actually. So even though he's still like executive producing stuff for Baby Cow, he's gone back to touring as a poet. Um, he was the first of his kind of poetry group to have a TV show, which you've already mentioned, a sitcom called Package 3, which also had Frank Skinner and Jenny Eclair in it. He played a theatre owner organising a variety show, but it, I think it was at that point where he kind of realised that his talent was more for writing and less for acting. I mean, that was one of Steve Coogan's first television appearances was on Package 3 as a, as a small part that Henry Normal had, uh, had invited him on to do. The two of them wrote all of Steve Coogan's live shows together, which, of course, included the characters Paul and Pauline Calf, uh, the Mancunian Lagerlout with a particular hatred for students and his demi-waved, fun-loving sister. I, I love, 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 love Paul and Pauline Calf, uh, as we'll hear more of. The character of Paul Carr first appeared on Jonathan Ross's show Saturday Zoo as a regular kind of stand-up skit. The character proved popular and Coogan and Normal wrote two standalone home video style shows called Podcast Video Diaries and later Three Fights, Two Weddings and a Funeral, also known as Pauline Carr's Wedding Video. Both of them starred Steve Coogan as both Paul and Pauline Carr. John Thompson as Fat Bob, Patrick Marber first as Roland the student and then Spiros, Pauline's Greek fiancé. He was the third member of the writing team for that. Uh, he also worked on, obviously, Alan Partridge, the day-to-day -day with Steve Coogan, but was notoriously difficult to work with uh, and eventually went on to go and have his own career as a playwright. But, I, I mean, I remember that, like, listening to a lot of uh, Rahela Stupper, Richard Herring's theatre podcast, he would talk quite a lot about, because he was obviously involved in those early days of, of um, On the Hour as well with mm. Marbury and Coogan, and he would talk a lot about how difficult Patrick Marble was to get on with. And actually I went back and listened to the Steve Coogan episode of Realistic for today. Yeah. Uh, and he's trying to draw Steve Coogan into saying Patrick Marble, Patrick Marble is an ass, but he, he was, <laughs> Coogan wasn't really having it. But I, I think, yeah, Richard Herring basically said, I was a clash of personalities in that everybody else's personality clashed with Patrick Marble's. Yeah. I think from, from listening to Rehistopa, Richard Herring said before that I think he kind of got felt forced out by Patrick Marber 
that I think he was playing quite a big role was uh, Richard Herring and, and Stuart Lee when they were writing on the hour. And I think Patrick Marber was just, like you say, just difficult to work with and kind of forced them out. Yeah, Coogan also in that Realistopo was saying that how at the time he was just having the best of both worlds because he was able to do his stuff with his Manchester friends. So with, with Henry Normal and John Thompson, them in there, but then also with his Oxbridge friends, you know, yeah. Ian Ucci and uh, Leon Herring and uh, and Patrick Marber. Mm. Normal features in both the video diary shows as Darren, uh, the man who wears an orthopedic shoe and works in John Menzies. Uh, th- those two shows I had over the Christmas periods of 1993 and 1994, respectively. Both shows were incredibly well received, and Three Fights, Two Weddings, and a Funeral won the BAFTA for Best Comedy Series in 1995. Wow. I'm just questioning how it was ever in that category as a one-off. <laughs> <laughs> From a one-off. Or even if you count podcast video, don't you know, as a series of two a year apart. It's baffling that, I mean, you might come on to this, Robert, I don't know, but it's baffling that. It didn't become a series, didn't Paul Calf? I mean, we'll get onto it with, with Coogan's Run, where there's a, a Paul Calf episode, but th- that it was that good and that popular, and obviously award winning. And apart from like Steve, oh Steve, I can know Coogan play, you know, d- still brings the characters back for stand-up shows, but that's kind of it, isn't it? I guess he just didn't want to didn't want to burn them out. I mean, I'm quite thankful for it, really. Although, you know, he's done so much Partridge and Partridge is, you know, with every time, every new Partridge thing I see or listen to, I think it's the best. So, yeah, I don't know. I think he could he could have done more, more cast for sure. I mean, it's so eminently quotable. I mean, I, I think I could quote both episodes front to back. But every time I see it, it, it just makes me laugh as hard as it as it always did when I was younger. And I remember kind of, I remember kind of watching it around that time as well. So at kind of age nine, ten, and like quoting it in school and nobody having a fucking clue what I was talking about. It's brilliant. I think one of the, one of the brilliant things about Pauline Calf in particular is how, I mean, even though, even though I've seen it so many times and know that it's him, you just forget, you forget A, that it's Steve Coogan and B, that it's a man playing that part anyway. Yeah. She's, she's so brilliantly written. I mean, it's not, often something you can say about men writing women's parts and certainly playing women's parts. Mm. I think it's such credit to Coogan and Normal that, you know, she's just such a believable female character. We all know Pauline Calf. Yeah, we do. And she feels so lived in, doesn't she? Um, but it's interesting. And it's not done, sorry, it's not done with disdain either. Like so many other, so many other comedians would play that character with an like, you know, you something like Vicky Pollard or something. Yeah. And it would be really kind of sneery you know, playing it with disdain, but he's playing that both of those characters with such love, I think. It's funny, like earlier today I was reading that The Guardian have done a Steve Coogan's best characters in light of the Jimmy Savile uh, series that's, that's just aired. Pauline Calf was 14th. Really? I felt that was a bit harsh and they were saying that there was like an air of misogyny about it, which I... No. I don't think so. It's not remembered and revered the way it should be as as absolute kind of classic. I mean, I, I I would say I find it as funny as Partridge. It's a difficult thing to compare because there's so much more Partridge than there is Calf. But I, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I, I yeah. just find it brilliant. Um, I agree. Yeah. So the success of Video Diaries led to Coogan's Run, which was a six part comedy show with six standalone mini films, all with Coogan playing the main character. 
and with the main characters kind of um, doing cameos in each other's episodes. I called them mini films because they were very much made in kind of uh, short film style, often with kind of crime or thriller plots and a, and a darker edge, as well as obviously the comedy. But for me, the parole officer felt at the time like it was a kind of feature length version of an episode of Coogan's Run. Mm. And it's convincing baddie and its crime plot. It kind of felt much more like something like Get Calf, which was the first episode of Coogan's Run. Because with the other five characters, they were all characters that either hadn't really been seen yet or they were brand new characters. But the first episode was called Get Calf and contained the already recognizable Paul and Pauline, in which Paul witnesses a bank robbery by three brothers and has to identify them in court and then has to go on the run once they once they get out of prison, declaring that they're going to get calf. Uh, other episodes, such as Natural Born Quizzes, containing Coogan and Marber as brothers who kidnapped the hosts and other contestants of a TV quiz show that they lost in the 70s to recreate it 20 years on so that they win. That displays really kind of Coogan and Norbal's desire to kind of move into film writing, I think. Actually, for that episode, was mm. was mainly written by Coogan and Marber, but Henry Normal co-wrote Get Calf and The Ernest uh, Handyman for All Seasons, but uh, he also contributed like additional material to most of the other ones as well. Each episode had slightly different writing teams, which included people like Patrick Marber, Arthur Matthews, disgraced bigot Graham Linehan, and Jeffrey Perkins, people like that. In a 2015 article, The Independent credited Coogan's run as a forerunner of Inside Number 9 with standalone stories and dark sides to them. I'd also liken it, though, to like the later episodes of Comic Strip Presents. Yeah. I'm thinking of like, things like uh, Four Men in a Car, that kind of thing. Definitely. It's, kind of, it's much more of a kind of, th- got a thriller edge to it with ridiculous comedy. Yeah. But on the whole, kind of nowhere near as funny for me, nowhere near as funny as Video Diaries, but it definitely integral to the genesis of Parole Officer and actually on revisit. So it's something that when it came, I was, I was young when it came out and I was, I was so used to um, Video Diaries that it, it felt like too much of a departure. And what mm. we were saying is when we were texting each other last night, it, it's quite yes. it's, too sophisticated almost like the Ernest Moss episode is yeah is incredibly sophisticated and a really kind of like bold thing to put out on primetime BBC2 yeah exactly and I, I was watching it last night and I, I didn't get it when I was a kid and I think that's natural not to like I bought the first so in those days on VHS you only got three episodes so I bought Coogan's Run not having seen any of it but I think I've maybe seen bits of the Gareth Cheeseman one so I bought that one and then was like, what's this? But now, watching it again, because I love those Peter Sellers movies of the early 60s and Ealing comedies of the 50s, so watching that now, I just fell in love with that episode because it's just that's the sort of thing I enjoy watching. And it's so well done, and it feels so of its time, Of I mean, of the time it's depicting. The Karis Cheeseman one is the one that gets, I think, remembered probably more than any because, it, well, you know, people saying, how close it is to Partridge. He's a much more nasty character. Well, it doesn't have any of the warmth of, of no. Partridge whatsoever. Mm. I actually, I, don't, I mean, I don't think it is. On rewatch, certainly, uh, Ernest Moss and the, and the Natural Born Quizzes one are like the most kind of interesting, for sure. Yeah. Um, Keegan and Normal continue to collaborate and in 1999 set up Baby Cow Productions, named after their greatest of comedy creations. That's become arguably the biggest indie hitter of British comedy, both TV and film. So, of course, it's going to feature heavily again on this podcast. But some of the 
some of the things they've produced and exact produced on uh, baby cow are uh, ridiculous. Really, it's like a like a one um, like a like a like a two man production line for finding and then exploiting, if you like, some of the best comedy talents. Not exploiting, but you know what I mean. Um, but I feel like I feel like we're getting to the point now, guys. I, I we're covering some of my absolute favourite uh, history of British comedy stuff. I mean, I yeah, like I say, I'm such a Steve Coogan fan. Always a huge fan of uh, Paul and Pauline Calf. I don't know where uh, where you stood on Paul and Pauline Calf and um, Coogan's one at the time and, and subsequently. Um, yeah, so like I said, I started out on. Partridge, that was my first introduction to Steve Coogan and and absolutely just loved it. Think like everybody else when I was a kid, um, watching that first run. And then going back and watching Know Me, Knowing You, I remember having the double video box uh, of that. Um, and also Paul and Pauline Carfer, I remember watching recording it on the BBC and watching it. And I'm just loving it, loving the format of it and the, the jokes and Steve Coogan live and lewd. That, that stand-up video with Paul and Pauline Calf, Ernest Moss, Duncan Thicket, yep. and John Thompson as Bernard Wright on the PCR, what would be called work now, version of Bernard yeah, Manning. Yeah, that was brilliant, inspires. Yeah, Light and Lude, I didn't actually, you know, so I, I think, well, I definitely saw uh, Podcast Studio Diaries before I saw Alan Partridge, and I definitely, I used to have this cassette tape, which I think it had come free with one of my brother's lads, I think it was a loaded one, actually, it was called, it was called sampler and it was a load of stand-up uh clips oh. on set yeah uh all of it kind of talking about sex and it had paul paul and pauline calf clips on it and i just used to play those over and over and over again oh yeah because uh, and i think that was taken from the live and lewd um stand-up mm. show but i had the the man who thinks he's it which was his second stand-up show on vhs yeah. which I t- I've seen so many times, and obviously that that kind of launched the career of of Simon Pegg and Julia Davis as well, didn't it? They they, yeah. they featured on that, but yeah, I mean, just just always such a big fan, and 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 all that stuff in. I remember really wanting to love Coogan's Run when it came out, and then being ultimately quite disappointed because it. I, I think it was before its time, but times I've watched it subsequently, I've I've always I've appreciated it so much more. It's not laugh out loud funny like video diaries is, but it's it's really well written. Yeah, it's it's funny going back to it because like I said, I bought the VHS, but it, you only got the first three episodes of it. So I never bought the other ones because I didn't really get it. I didn't and I never went back and watched it. I think I watched them first because I remember I think I must have seen Ernest Moss on the Live and Lewd and really enjoyed it. And then watching this version of Ernest Moss that's a kind of early 60s or late 50s early 60s version of being like I, what is this meant to be funny kind of thing and, and then never going back to it and then only kind of going back because we were watching the parole officer and we talked about you know let's not look at Partridge let's look at the other stuff that Coogan was doing in the 90s and I really enjoyed watching it even the kind of lesser ones like is it Thursday Night Fever with Mike Crystal yeah uh, that character yeah Thursday Night Fever Stallone. yeah yeah, and uh, Graham Fellows, who played John Shuttleworth, and I'm really enjoying it. And I need to watch Natural Born Quizzes and the last episode of it, which I will get to. But yeah, so I think it's a lot better than I thought it was. I just think it was probably a bit too f- sophisticated for me as a sort of young teenager. Well, like I say, I think I think the way the way those were written, like in 
in the kind of film style, like there were many films. Uh, and I, I think that kind of directly kind of influences how Coogan and Normal wrote The Parole Officer. So we move on to the making of The Parole Officer. Uh, the project began when producer Duncan Kenworthy approached Coogan and asked him if he'd like to write a film, simply enough. Uh, he immediately asked Henry Normal to write it with him as they were both keen to do their first film project together after all the TV they'd written. Nearly all the actors were approached with just a script and a lot of them wanted to join because they were Steve Coogan fans. Ben Miller was approached by Coogan himself at the Perrier Awards in 1999 to be a part of it. Uh, Lena Headey and Stephen Waddington, both of whom had never done comedy before, did uh, table reads for Coogan, John Digan and Kenworthy. Uh, Coogan said jokingly on writing the film that if he wasn't allowed to play Simon Garden, uh, the main character, then he wouldn't give the producers the script. This kind of helped with the technical way he approached kind of acting the comedy that he'd written down to kind of knowing where to put inflections on certain words to get laughs. He's a big comedy technician. So he, like, he always talks about that in interviews, like how, to, how technical comedy is. So, and that's always going to help with writing your own, uh, performing your own scripts, isn't it, I think? Yeah, you know how they're meant to be and the rhythm and of the dialogue. Exactly. And he, he said he wanted it to be naturalistic, but essentially escapist with fun flights of fancy, such as, as the character of Victor thrown in. Uh, ben Miller, who played Colin, said he liked the fact that the way Coogan and Normal had written the script was to be less like Partridge and more grounded real characters. It worked, mu it worked much better for film, although obviously that, I guess that idea is kind of blown out the water. So when it, Alpha Papa, you just got to have a good script writer, haven't you? Yeah, exactly. I I don't know. I'd, I'd be tempted to say that I don't know. Some of the characters seem but cartoon like in the parole officer for me. Yeah, so. well, see, I I think it was the first time I saw it in the cinema was probably one of the things I didn't like about it. I wanted the more cartoony. I wanted a bit more kind of OTT partridge style moments. Mm. Um, John Digan got Coogan's seal of approval for his attention to detail for individual performance. Digan was also a screenwriter, as you've mentioned, Guy. Uh, and so they did at least one rewrite together, Coogan and Normal and Digan. Uh, the other actors liked to try and do impressions of John Digan and leave messages as him on each other's phone. Because he, he had quite a dull Australian accent, I think. It does really seem in these interviews like Coogan isn't fully behind what he's saying when he's talking about the film and that he, he seems to be just going through the motions promoting it. Uh, and later on, he'd go on to distance himself from it. Maybe we'll touch on that later. Uh, the actors all said they found it hard not to laugh doing scenes with Coogan, which I can imagine is a very real thing. I, I think uh, Stephen Waddington yeah. particularly said that he just, you know, he's one of those people who doesn't really have to do very much to just make you laugh because you get, he said he'd gone into every scene with him already being a Steve Coogan fan, thinking about all the characters that he's played. So he just sees like little bits of each character coming out with every line he delivers and it just made it really difficult not to laugh every time they did a scene together. God, I can imagine. Although the film was mainly set in Manchester, uh, a lot of the exteriors were shot in Liverpool, most notably the bank where they do the heist. That was the old Bank of England building on Castle Street in Liverpool. I don't know how familiar with Liverpool you are, Guy. No, I mean, uh, to be fair, I'm more Manchester, to be to be honest. I, I know Liverpool a little bit, but a I, I recognise a lot more of Manchester than I did Liverpool. I mean, I think, I think this is obviously for kind of um, ease of being able to share. I think uh, Liverpool, 
at the time, is a lot more amenable city to be able to uh, shoot locations in. But I think that they do mm. they do a good job of putting enough of Manchester in to kind of remind you that it's Manchester. You know, really offer you stuff like the the Boddington's Brewery, yeah. etc. Uh, there was yeah, exactly. There's also shoots in Blackpool as well because the, the film starts mm. in Blackpool. Most notably, the scene on the big one roller coaster at Blackpool Pleasure Beach, which obviously is uh, Pepsi Max. Yes, Pepsi Max, big think... one, wasn't it? Is that what it was yeah. called? Yeah, that's what it I was. I mean, that's probably one of the most enduring scenes for right or wrong about that about the film, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think you're uh, right. Coogan did a lot of his own stunts, springing into the reinforced window, uh, well, from at least one angle anyway. Uh, he said on this feature, I know what my strengths and weaknesses are, but I'm not Bruce Willis. Uh, <laughs> he did do the zip wire between the two buildings in Liverpool for real. Oh, God. Uh, Coogan worried that the things he was writing wouldn't be covered by the budget and thought that the key to the humour was that the more James Bond style the stunts, the more funny it would be when performed by a character who essentially worked for the social services. <laughs> and I think that's a, that's a kind of good point, isn't it? If, if that's where he kind of wants the, the, the kind of base level of the humour to it, not the base level, but the base, the base level, if that makes yeah. sense. Um, if they, if that's where he wants that to be coming from, then yeah, he's like you say, like having having a probation officer playing, is uh, doing James Bond style stunts. Actually, probation officer, parole officer, that's a a good point to address, yeah. isn't it? Because I guess yeah. they called it the parole officer with an American audience in mind, because it's not a term we really use in the UK, isn't it? They they never refer to no. him as a probation officer in the film. It's always the parole officer. Uh, sorry. The other way around. Never referred to him yeah, as a Yeah, yeah, I was going to say. Yeah. They never call him the pro, they call him the probationer or pro, probation officer, which is quite an interesting one. So, God, I mean, I mentioned that I saw this at the cinema at the time. What about you? Uh, I got it on video. So, I think it, so it came out in August. So, it must have been like the year afterwards that I got, because I don't remember getting it for like Christmas, but it used to take about nine months for a, a video to come out of a, of a film that had been at the picture. So, I think it would have been. My birthday, two thousand and two. It should be July, so I remember getting it, getting that VHS, and on my birthday, and then watching it. And I don't think I was that impressed with it at the time. I, I don't remember watching it many times, if if at all. Well, I had such high hopes for it when I went to go and see it, and because I was wanting, I was wanting Partridge, and I was wanting uh, forecast video diaries and, and like even other cooking stuff that I loved it a lot. Uh, Tony Farino or Coogan's Run. And actually, I think maybe it disappoints me in the same kind of way that Coogan's Run did, in that I was expecting something much more out there and, and silly like uh, Forecast Video Diaries was. And it, it, it felt... Uh, I mean, yeah, a lot, a lot of things kind of fell out of place with, with the sort of thing that Coogan did and you don't want to say that. But yeah, I was ultimately disappointed, although I did come out of it like remembering certain things. You know, I always, adored, or I would at least for a while, like quote some things from it. So the, uh, you're just a dwarf with a calculator. That was one of my, <laughs> you'll have a, yeah. a bum hole like a clown's pocket. Those kind of things I used to quote as, because as, as a teenage boy, those lines are very, yeah. very funny. But that actually, because think of it, those are both Stephen Delane lines, aren't they? So um yeah, that's yeah, right. Interesting. Yeah. I remember thinking like he he played a horrible bastard really well. And that was one mm. of the things I was most looking forward to coming back to was his performance. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I think it's it's a funny one looking back that 
I didn't remember too much of the film, so it was later going back to it. I kind of remember the end and the bits with Lena Headey and the uh, and when they kind of um, confront the Stephen Delane character. I remember little bits of that, but I didn't really remember much else of it, so it didn't really stick. It was more watching it again. And I was like, oh yeah, Victor turns up and this and that and Ben Miller's character and all of that. Whereas, yeah, it didn't really stick. And like I said, I had it on video, but I think I only watched it once. Well, I think, let's see if the intervening 20 odd years have uh, performed any kind of alchemy and changed how we feel about this film. Let's, uh, let's get into the parole officer, shall we? Let's do it after this. You're in a lot of trouble, but hang on. I think I can help you. If you keep your mouth shut, I've got a feeling the murderer will never be found. You can't intimidate me. Let me give it a shot. If you open your mouth, I won't lay a finger on you. But you'll go to prison. And when those nonces and those perverts get hold of a clever boy like you, and I'll make sure they do, they're going to be queuing up round the block. You're going to end up with an arsehole like a clown's pocket. That was pretty good. The film begins in, a, in an office with an attractive blonde lady writing on a typewriter, even though she's got a computer to her right. I didn't even notice that. <laughs> yeah, there's a computer to her right, and then she's on a keyboard. The joke doesn't work. Wouldn't work so well on a computer, I don't think. That. Well, I suppose you have the tapping noise of the keyboard, but it doesn't... I think they... I think because the monitor would be covering her face, yeah. maybe, if she's like... Yeah, I guess so. And then, Well, you couldn't have her to the side because the joke that follows yeah. wouldn't wouldn't work. Sorry, I, th- I think they just they just want the, the, the joke being that, you know, the, the void of the boredom of just sitting, waiting around is being, is being uh, filled by the noise of the typewriter, essentially, which has a much more interesting noise than the keyboard does, I guess. Must be trying to think yeah. like Steve Coogan there. Yeah, so Steve Coogan's character, Simon Garden, is sat opposite her looking nervous. He starts to swivel around on his chair um, to the annoyance of this blonde receptionist. And then he leans back in his chair. First, he kind of catches himself before falling over. And then he does it again and he falls on his ass. I kind of felt you could see that joke coming a it's mile telegraphed, off. isn't it? Even as a... How, how old were we in 2001? 16. Even as a 16-year-old, I saw that one coming yeah. in. Exactly. Um, yeah, and you got a shirt from Coogan as well as he goes back. Then we have this kind of gratuitous shot under the desk of the receptionist as she puts one leg over the other. Uh, Coogan tells her that, or rather his character Simon tells her that he, I wasn't looking up a skirt. And then we have a sort of awkward exchange where he tells her that he prefers skirts because it allows the air to breathe around the vagina. He shouts at a middle-aged I woman. I think all of this bit, all of this, these first kind of lines of uh, dialogue from him are purposely very partridge to kind of mm. put the audience at ease, I guess. Because I, I mean, there are elements of partridge that come out later in the character, but I don't think it's entirely fair to compare them that much. I don't know. Or would you disagree mm. with that? No, no, I think, I think that's fair. I think this... I think this is more grounded. And it's actually something I, I probably want to get in a bit later on is this is the way he's done his character in comparison to what he do, what he's done in Coogan's buff. I don't know if it's worth doing it now, is the fact that he's not wigged up. There's not he's not doing a voice. He's very much like almost playing 
more of a version of himself maybe than ever before, where we're used to seeing him as Paul Calf with the blonde mullet. Or, and, and, you know, yeah, diff- and he very much can't be grotesque, can he? Because he has to go on to be a kind of leading man in a rom-com later on, doesn't he? So like, you can't, yeah. they have to kind of make him look nerdy but sexy, I guess. And I think this is one of the things that we're going to get to in future episodes that's interesting where... When we do Michael Rimmer, I think we've got that coming up when we get onto some of the Peter Sellers films, is the fact that you end up with comedians wanting to be romantic leads in films. Writing their own wish fulfillment storylines, isn't it? In a very much in a Woody Allen style way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That that's it. You know, you cast Lena Headey as a as a leading leading lady and, you know, fantasy fulfilled. And there's a great Harry Seacombe quote where he, he, he was talking about Peter Sellers, but he said that Peter Sellers wanted to be a matinee idol where instead he was an idol of matinees. And I think that's, it's a great quote. And I think that's the thing that we've got here with Coogan and, you know, earlier on in Sellers' career, they're wanting to, these aspirations that they've got to be more than they are at the moment, I think, is coming through. I think you can draw a lot of comparisons between the two, early career anyway. I think, yeah, I think Coogan kind of recognised yeah. the need to go off the uh, sorry to to not go off the rails in in the same way and kind of yeah. pulled himself back from the from the edge so a middle-aged woman has come out and told simon that it's time for him to go in in the room there are three people sat behind a big wooden desk and one of them is glenn from the thick of it glenn from the thick of it he's gone glental and he's doing it <laughs> he's doing a northern accent as well isn't he he is doing an other accent. I did write, fuck off, Bagpuss. <laughs> the elderly gay tennis coach. <laughs> yeah. We all, I mean, we could just go on and on about uh, Glenn quotes, couldn't we? <laughs> yeah. Let's let's leave those for when we do in the loop. Yeah. I Definitely. think. Yeah. So there's been a letter of complaint against uh, Simon and saying that he's a negative and disruptive influence on the Blackpool Probation Office, which has been signed by everyone in the office. Simon begins to defend himself to some swirling music, talking about the differences made to the lives of the thousands of prisoners who've been released from jail under his supervision. And this is broken by Glenn shouting, Of these 1,000, how many are going now, going straight? Three. The guy from East Disease, the guy from Game of Thrones, and Ben Miller. Yeah, I say that the three former prisoners are now up defending Simon. And they all agree that he's annoying. And then we have another thing where he's he's about to give another speech and then he's cut off and they offer him a vacancy in Manchester, which he takes. And then we have our opening credit sequence to Dreamer by Supertramp. Um, great track, I think. Yeah, absolutely. So we've got uh, Simon riding his bike through Manchester I really like this bit because I recognise so, so many bits of Manchester that was really good, including the old Odeon cinema that got demolished on Oxford Street. So I was like, oh, it looks like they're doing it up. <laughs> yeah, I think you, again, slightly more familiar with Manchester than me. But yeah, no, I did I did recognise that as being Manchester and not Liverpool, that, that bit anyway. Yeah. Oh, I noticed in the in the credits that Stephen Delane gets, his, gets an and... The, the and, you apparently, and Stephen Delane, which you apparently have to request through your agent. Oh, God. Is that because he's Tony Award winning Stephen Delane? And at that Tony Award winning Stephen Delane. He deserves his and. Yeah. He's, he, he, you know, cutting to the chase, I think he's really good in this because he's fucking horrible, <laughs> this character. He's very good. I mean, 
from what you say, he's a villain in Game of Thrones as well, right? So like he, he's kind of so he's a character who starts off good, but then he does something quite awful, and then it sort of kind of ruins him, and then it it leads to his downfall. Basically, so he starts off as a good man and then becomes corrupted by power, basically. So he lets a lady with a pram walk across the zebra crossing. She calls him a wanker. He tries to give a dog a crisp and it nearly bites his hand off. A red sports car zooms past him and nearly causes an accident and pulls up next to a, a, a parked up police car, revving its engine. The cops look at the car and the driver winds the window down to reveal a young teenage girl who smiles and drives off at speed with the cops giving chase. So after escaping the cops, she drives on some waste ground when a noise comes from the back seat and it's a stuffed koala bear. She turns round and then as she turns back round after looking at the bear, she nearly hits another car head on and then we have this dodgy cut where she flips the car. So yeah, the girl's unconscious and a man approaches the wreckage. The koala's now open with drugs that have been inside of it. Kind of The stuffing's come out and the drugs are there. Uh, he stuffs some pills in her pocket before lighting a match and throwing it in the car. He walks off with the soft toy and puts it in his boot. We hear police sirens and he runs back to the wreckage to rescue the girl. The cop tells the man that he saved the girl's life and it was revealed that the man is D.I. Burton City Police. You've noticed a lot more detail than I have, Guy. Uh, yeah, D.I. Burton City Police, but absolute bastard. And you know straight away. Yeah. I put the big reveal. The girl is Simon's latest client. Shouldn't she be in hospital? She'd just been in a car accident. Yeah, unless they're just, you know, it, it is a film. They might just be skipping out the boring bits. <laughs> it's the same day. <laughs> Please change the costume. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> so it turns out that the girl is Kirsty and she has a history of car theft and being expelled from school. She's reading a porn mag called Big Dipper, which features oiled up muscly men, a naked chef with a big baguette where his dick should be. And Simon confiscates the porn mag and there is a knock at the door. Enter Cersei Lannister herself, Lena Headey, in a police uniform. Headey in a uniform and you immediately know... Um, even when I hadn't seen this before, that there's going to be some hilarious misunderstanding with him with the gay porn mag. Yeah, which I've got next. So she spots the porn mag, which makes Simon uncomfortable. I'm not sure if it's meant to be implicit that the two know each other is what I put, because I kind of felt, did it? yeah, do they know each other? Because Simon looks really pleased to see her. Um, Lena's character, Emma, says that she's here to see Kirsty, the young girl. And when they look, Kirsty is trying to escape out the window. They drag her back, drugs spill out of her pocket, uh, and onto D.I. Burton, who stood below with another detective. Now we're in the interview room, and D.I. Burton is trying to get Kirsty to admit to the possession of drugs as well as stealing the car, and they'll drop all the other charges. Simon goes to see D.I. Burton and tells him that Kirsty says that she never touched the drugs and that he, he believes her. He's about to say they were in the koala bear when he realises that Burton's got this koala bear in a carrier bag. He's wearing a lovely beige jacket. Who, <laughs> <laughs> D.I. Burton? No, Steve uh, Simon Garden is wearing a, a lovely beige, beige jacket in this thing. Oh, I didn't notice his love. He's so beige, I didn't even realise. So he realises what, what this means and drops it 
before Burton makes a snide comment about having to catch muggers and rapists instead of chatting around all day like probation officers. So Simon approaches Emma and tells him that he forgot to ask D.I. Burton something. She gives him an address to try, where Burton gets a lot of his info. Simon tells her that the gay porn mag wasn't his and that he's not gay. He asks her out for dinner and she accepts. That was easy. That's something that I found interesting about this is the fact that he's going to be such a doofus and she seems kind of into him from the off. She immediately, yeah, straight away, there, there doesn't seem to be any kind of winning over. I think she, she, yeah, she immediately takes to him, doesn't she? Yeah, and that's the thing. Like Everyone else seems to think that he's just a bit of a, I don't like I said, just a bit of a, not a lummox, but just a kind of boring character. No one seems to be too interested in. And then she, she's immediately like, yeah, I'll go out with you. And I don't really understand. There's no kind of, nothing's earned. Do you know what I mean? And that, that seems to be a bit of a problem. I just don't think they're as interested in the, in the love scene. It strikes me as it may have been kind of insisted upon by, um, uh, by studio, maybe that, that they had to have the, um, uh, the romantic comedy aspect to it. And maybe they're just not as interested in that as they are to the more kind of cop thriller side of it. Although mm. earlier in that scene, this is when she's booking all the um, protesters and there is a funny bit with the uh, student Grim Reaper. Well, she says something like name and I am the Grim Reaper occupation student. Yeah. <laughs> it was a good bit was that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. So Simon goes to the address, which it turns out is a strip club, and he walks in and tries leaning on one of the poles, which he slides down. Yeah, can't have a comedy film in the early noughties without seeing a strip club. He spots Burton and his colleague talking to another man, and they go into he follows them he follows them in the back rooms of the strip club where he sees Burton's number two getting tooled up with a gun. Burton passes the bear to a new character played by John Henshaw, who We've mentioned earlier from his guest role in The Royal Family. Yeah. So yeah, John Henshaw is a gangster called Cochrane. Um, I put at this point, we can presume he's the boss of the establishment, which he is. Henshaw asks about his Porsche. Burton tells him he's insured for fire and theft. Cochrane passes him a hold all the £20 notes, but there's more in them was expected. Burton asks him why he's getting a bonus, and Cochrane tells him it's a golden handshake. You know, you can get a gram of coke now for 40 quid. It's not worth the risk anymore. Basically, Cochrane is going legit and Burton's not happy. And he tells him that there's one problem with that, me. So Burton tries to fight his corner verbally. And then we see Simon. So this is another thing that annoyed me where we see Simon's hand reach out to grab a packet of crisps from the box that's hiding him. Um, and he he might just get them out, open them, and starts like lick the crisp, which is quite a funny gag, actually. So this bit does kind of annoy me, but it just feels sort of out of touch and a bit forced at this point. It's quite a like they. I think they've kind of qualified. So there was obviously a scene of him in crisps earlier over the credits, but they haven't really. I think he needs to explain the hypoglycemic uh, aspect before that scene happens, rather than yeah later because he's about to explain it, isn't it? Why are you eating crisps? Hypoglycemic, and there's a, there is a bit, there's a deleted scene uh, from that uh, credit scene outside the cafe, and actually he meets. Um, so actually, this this goes back to what you were saying about he wins her over quite easily because there's a deleted scene earlier on of the two of them in the cafe. 
Oh. The cafe that he's come out of where he's trying to uh, feed the dog Chris. There's a deleted scene where they're chatting in the cafe before that, and I feel like that's probably got to be left in for both yeah. for the hyperglycemic and for the um, having already known Dina Haiti. Burton starts to strangle the accountant for giving him too much lip. Who he's already referred to as a dwarf with a calculator, which, as I mentioned earlier, is one of my favourite lines from the from the film. Less yeah. so this time round, I would say, but still quite funny. As he's being strangled, he spots Simon behind the crisps, who shakes his head and puts his finger to his lips. Burton throws the dead man to the floor and asks Cochrane if he still wants to go legit. No, I've changed my mind. So Cochrane isn't going legit anymore. He's uh, staying to a life of crime. A member of staff enters the room and says they need more crisps, which causes Simon to choke. Simon reveals himself to the room. Turns out he's hyperglycemic, which is when the sugar in the blood gets too high, so he needs to have crisps. Burton asks Simon what he's doing there. He says, I, I don't know, and creates a distraction and runs away. He's chased onto the roof where he comes to a dead end. He tries to barton with Cochrane's goons who, by giving them £20 each not to kill him, they punch him as he's telling him the pin number, which I was quite a good bit. Um, it's a battle of Hastings. And he falls off the roof and as into the bit. canal. And as yeah. he falls off the roof, he says, shit, in a very partridge style. And uh, yeah, I found that very funny. I yeah. like the, and I do like the, Every bit, you know, a lot of aspects about that scene. I like how menacing Stephen Delane is. I think yeah. that is a convincing offing of the accountant. Yeah. I like the the chase and the stunts, and then I like the falling off into the canal and saying shit. Me too. <laughs> I just don't like the crisp bit. Yeah, it's haphazard. I'd, I would like to see how, yeah, maybe it would be solved by reinserting that deleted theme. So Simon emerges from the water with a condom wrapped around his finger. Uh, the goons have been searching the water with torches. Uh, Simon submerges back into the lovely canal water. It's now the following morning and a local radio station tells us that a corpse has been found in the Stockport Canal. And, um, well, I just, at this point, I'm just liking the name Simon Garden as well. I didn't, Steve Coogan is quite good at picking creating names it's just a yeah. good a good boring name i was gonna say it's a great bland name yeah. it's perfect for that character i think is simon garden <clears throat> yeah and the fact he hasn't gone with gardener as well he's gone with garden which is so flattened yeah garden oh, the, 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 yeah that would be an absolute i mean if, if you quizzed him on that though i'm sure they would have deliberated about that for ages and yeah yeah you know the, the, there'll be a spoken word specific but uh um reasons for choosing that name i'm sure definitely uh, a wallet has also been found near the body simon enters the police station to report a murder he reaccounts last night's troubles to the policeman on the front desk i'm not a lunatic i'm a probation officer anyway he wants to speak to a senior officer enter di burton of course you can't escape him. he's there at every turn isn't he haunting him why did he go to the same police station I presume it's the same police station that he works at. Yeah, it is, because I think we see Lena Eady later on. So, yeah, Simon sat in the interview room. We had Burton and his number two discuss what they're going to do. The number two says, uh, you know, can't we kill him? Burton says, we can't do that. We're police officers. I mean, he has just killed someone in a previous scene. Yeah. So, 
well, I like that. I like the line. You can't intimidate me. And he goes, well, let's give it a shot. So <laughs> he's very, very intimidating. He is. He's so good in is in this role. Is Stephen Delaney? I think it, yeah, it's excellent. It's funny when you when you think about this and staggered. And I know that he's meant to be more like the Michael Prey character is obviously meant to be a bastard, but he's not as good as like a Stephen Delane type just brings so much more fucking pathos, well, not pathos, like gravitas to it. Well, and it's, and it's just better written, isn't it? In, yeah. In so many ways. 100%. So now in the interview and Burton tells Simon that he's in a lot of trouble. He's in charge of the murder investigation and Simon's wallet has been found near the body, but it can all go away if he keeps his mouth shut. Otherwise, he'll go to prison and be at the mercy of all the nonces and perverts in prison. They'll be queuing around the block and he'll have an arsehole like a clown's pocket. There's that line that I mentioned at the beginning as well, isn't it? You know, you can see why a 16-year-old boy would find that funny. A cleaned-up Simon empties his desk. Emma shows up and asks him if he likes Thai food because she thinks he might want to celebrate that he's no longer a, a major suspect in the investigation. He tells her he can't because he's leaving. He's not really up to the job here, so he's going to try the one back home. What about a goodbye dinner, she asks. He turns her down. So she's going out with a bunch of mates and thought he might want to join them. But don't worry, you won't be missed. I was like, ouch, you know, you're breaking my heart here. Uh, and then he, he he drives back to Blackpool with uh, Nina Simone on the soundtrack there at that point after that. Which uh, Yeah, exactly. They've got some good tracks so far, haven't they? So the needle drops. Yeah, it's the first time I remember hearing that song. And while that's playing, what else is playing is the echo of Pocket, Pocket, Pocket. <laughs> Which maybe that's why that line is so funny. It's yeah. Because it's the echo. It's not the ori- original delivery. It's the, <laughs> the over and over in his head. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah. Um, yeah, we have a bit. I just want to go back to the bit where with Lena where Simon tells her, you know, it's been real nice working with you and, uh, you know, I'm sure your career will go from strength to strength. <laughs> she was really pissed off at him. <laughs> and he shakes her hand and she's just like, ditto, and walks off in a huff. I'm like, yeah, yeah, go on, Lena. But yeah, like I said, we've got um, Simon driving his old Volvo through the hills of Manchester, repeating the words that Lena said to him. So he's just going, ditto. And that's that's definitely Manchester, right? Isn't it? Or, uh, yeah, there and thereabouts. Because it looks a lot like West Yorkshire, doesn't it? But I mean, obviously, you know, much better, much better than me. But yeah, there's a bit later on that's that's on the way to Home Firth from the Manchester well, side, what, which so is I like the Saddleworth Moors. I was thinking, yeah, it's Saddleworth Moors, it's Home Firth, and there was a little bit that looked like uh, Millsbridge, Millsbridge, yeah, Millsbridge. Simon stops off in the village of Delph. So that's another yeah one that I recognize where he sees a TV in a window showing the news. Burton is on there being commended for saving Kirsty's life. To celebrate, he's receiving a medal of bravery. Simon then remembers, there was a CCTV camera recording Burton murdering the accountant. He then goes back to Manchester and back to the strip club and he sneaks in with some Japanese businessmen. <laughs> There's always a Japanese businessman joke, isn't there? And in probably every British, <laughs> yeah. British comedy ever. Japanese. Although one thing I do like about this scene is that he uh, he gives himself the name Bill, doesn't he? Ah, Bill. He's he's obsessed with the name Bill. When, when he, yeah, he's broken in and they ask him, oh, who are you? He goes, Bill. 
he looks for the tape, but Cochrane's taking it to the bank to put in his safety deposit box. Simon follows Henshaw to the Westclyde Bank. He gets Wolf whistled by a sex worker. She motions for him to come over. It's Lena, undercover. Uh, he says that she it looks absolutely gorgeous. <laughs> um, and yeah, she's like, I'm a prostitute. And he's like, right, don't, don't the police pay you enough? And she's like, no, I'm undercover. <laughs> Which I thought, good line. He's- He's, they're, they're, they're easy and obvious jokes, but they're, they're well delivered, so that's yeah. funny enough. You can let them off, can't you, when the, he knows how to deliver the, those lines. So they go for a coffee, which we don't see. So again, it's like they keep having to put these things in of this sort of rom-com plot, but like you say, I don't think they're too bothered about it. Well, he's, he's got to go and start assembling his A-team now, hasn't he? So he goes back to back to his three three he can trust. Yeah, back to Blackpool. He's getting the band back together. So first we've got the Asian man, George, uh, who tells Simon if he ever needs a favour, all he's got to do is ask. Simon asks him to help him rob a bank. They won't be taking any money, though, just a videotape for, for the murder. And he thinks it's role-play, doesn't he? Um, he has to reassure him, yeah. that, no, this isn't role-play. I actually need you to do this. And then that's quickly followed by the the famous roller coaster scene. Yeah, well, I just wanted to. There's a, a, a line that I liked where he's like, George, it was horrific. A, a man strangled a human being. Well, a, an accountant, which I thought was a, a good joke. I was like a good uh, joke at mocking accountants. Yeah, so going back to the scene on the roller coaster. Yeah. So, you, what, what do you make of that? It feels like a scene from another film, just completely. Yeah. No, I don't. It feels like it a bit because like we haven't had too many gross out gags. Yeah, it's Guesthouse Paradiso, isn't it? Yeah, Which, uh, <clears throat> yeah, completely out of place and not needed. Like, I, like, look, I'm not against jokes where people throw up on children. Like, I enjoyed that scene in the in betweeners where Will throws up on on an eight year old, but I think the rest of the movie has to play into that, and this doesn't. Yeah, it, it has to fit in, and there, there just seems little to no reason to, to have that in there, and it's quite—it's actually quite disappointing. Yeah. I've just remembered it? it was it was Simon who throws upon the child, not yes. Will. Yeah. I misremembered the in between us there. Apologies, but yeah, like you said, I think that is—it feels out of place him just throwing up on a load of brownies that are behind him, and it's the fact that it just keeps go. The you know it happens two or three times, doesn't it? Where it's like, and then you know. Um, yeah. Next, he's talking to the fishmonger. He tells Simon that he can't because he's got an invalid mother. Turns out he doesn't. I love that and reveal. Then, I did really yeah. like and really enjoy that reveal because she's really funny. Um, because what does she come and say? She says, "Oh yeah, I'd, I could have, I could have fried him, ate him, and shat him out in that song," <laughs> <laughs> which is a brilliant line. Yeah, yeah, and then they go and find out. Find, then they go and find Ben Miller's computer salesman uh, character. We have a, like a load of jokes, don't we, about computers that were very of the early two thousands. Those sort of gags. Yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, his, his character is basically a conduit for those types of jokes, isn't he? Mm. And then this is a bit where they look like where they drive over the Saddleworth Moor uh, on the way to Home Firth where Simon tells them they've got to get one more member of the gang, Victor. 
but the others don't know who Victor is and apparently he stole the crown jewels from the Tower of London and put them back without anyone noticing. Enter British acting royalty, Jenny Agatha. Jenny Agatha here for the dads. Yep. Um, She tells them that Victor is dead. He fell into a pie and pasty-making machine, which is what was buried as his remains. What a waste. Exactly. human life. (laughs) It's a good line. It is a good line. Um, Yeah, Jenny takes them to Victor's secret lair under the garage, which felt a bit James Bond, didn't it? I was like, yeah, I was trying to do some Johnny English style cue jokes there when he's like, yeah, he's asking what the flask is and it's a, it's a flask. So yeah. That, that joke didn't really get started. No, and I, that's one of the bits I probably didn't like so much is where it tries to go a bit too Hollywood. Um, yeah. Where it goes a bit too Hollywood for my liking. They go to Simon's house where the only rule is that you take your shoes off. They planned the robbery on a mini things to do whiteboard, which I did like. Yeah, I like how depressing that flash is as well. Oh, it's awful, isn't it? There's just, yeah, it's so bland and there's no personality there. (laughs) Great. And that's that's the thing that I enjoy is like good set dressing when when that's done right and people get it right. Colin and George argue over the best way to get in the vault. Colin thinks they should do it with a computer virus. They fight with Simon. This is like an Ocean's Eleven style walkthrough of how the heist is going to be, isn't it? And it's Ocean's Eleven this year as well. That was 2001, I think. Same yeah. year. Yeah. And he, he gives it some kind of acronym, doesn't he? Which I try to scribble down. But it says, is it called Simpis or something? It's something like that. I, yeah. I didn't get it either, to be fair. I, didn't, I must have missed that. I just put that they fight and Simon gets towel whipped in the dick. It sort of ends that. And he says, that really hurts, which is a kind of like direct Austin Powers line, isn't it, as well? <laughs> yeah, that's it. And then we have this bit where they, they talk about all go like the different music they're into. And si- Did you have Simon down as a Deep Purple fan? Not really, but I, I think that's quite an interesting choice because it's um, maybe it's basically saying to people in the audience, maybe you didn't realise that Deep Purple were really boring but they are (laughs) (laughs) with a smoke on the water you know it's written uh after a fire (laughs) i think if you wanted to uh, a real savage takedown of the music boring people listen to he should have been a prog rock fan sorry guy (laughs) no i don't like prog rock so it's fine i yeah i'm not a fan of prog apart from uh pink floyd but genesis and all that is not really for me apart from one or two the more i guess the more poppier (laughs) kind of stuff art, art rock stuff is probably more my thing than yeah not a prog rock fan but colin likes hardcore belgian trance that there's always a joke in this period as well isn't there about kind of hardcore belgian trance or weird subgenres of dance music yeah it kind of falls flat yeah colin tells them that the virus won't shut off the security system instead it was going to set all the alarms off in the city and colin gets an extra slice of toast as for his brainwave. Simon goes to see Emma. She's just had a shower and tells him to take a seat. Well, and and following in what's now becoming a pattern in this film, every time Lena Headey's on screen, she's wearing less and less to the point where now she's wearing nothing. He asks her what she's doing for the afternoon and she says nothing. So is he just showing up on a whim or is she inviting him round? 
like again, it just feels so underwritten, does this? And then he he goes on this thing that feels very partridge, where he's like, you know, my uncle Bernard, he, he owns a, a a really cool narrow boat on the Rochdale Canal, and it's like, it just feels like we're we're not far off going. Yeah, let's go to an owl sanctuary. Yes, yeah, yeah. We're not we're not far off that territory. You're right. Yeah, and then the cat comes out of the wardrobe, which moves the mirrored door. So then we get to see a naked Lena Headey drying herself with a towel. It's kind of, again, that's such a such an early naughty thing, isn't it? It's just kind of needless. <laughs> it's it it's a it's a needless yeah. bit. I mean, you can still do that scene and have the plot point of him seeing her naked without the gratuitousness. Mm. Yeah, sorry to sound all bow faced about it, but it, yeah, it, yeah, it's just. It just feels a little bit like I don't want to get into that thing about sex in movies because there's nothing, there's nothing, nothing wrong with it. It depends what you're doing it for, I think. And it just feels a little bit like, oh, come on, lads, let's look at Naked Lena Headey. It's all a bit American Pie, I think. Yeah, so yeah, it makes sense. Um, yeah, and then flustered, he tells Emma that you've got a lovely little cat. Yeah, yeah, again, crap, crap joke. I, I feel like even for two thousand and one, not good. And then we uh, we carry on with um, with sexual uh, shenanigans, really. With uh, they go to an exhibition of art and eros, sexuality and a creative impulse. Again, like we talked about telegraphed jokes earlier on, didn't we? With the seat tilt, you can as soon as you see that sculpture, you see this joke coming a fucking mile off, don't you? Yeah. Yeah, because we have a, the first shot of this scene is a wooden model of a, a man with a massive dick. Simon thinks, he's just showing off. And Emma tells him it's a fertility symbol, and if he touches it, it'll help increase his sexual potency. Emma asks him if he's scared to touch a penis. No, you're talking to a man who's going blind. Emma gives it a rub. That's quite a good bit. That's, that's a good joke. You're talking to a man that's going blind. I had to explain that joke to my partner. She didn't understand it. Oh, did you? <laughs> So, uh, yeah, I know. Come on, that's a good joke. Simon goes to rub it, but it breaks off in his hand. A female security guard appears. He hides it in his trousers. A little old lady spots it and looks shocked. She, that little old lady, I, I can't remember what her name is, but she's in countless British TV and comedies and films and whatnot. Yeah, I definitely recognised her. So we have this scene in the toilet where Simon has to make up that he's basically got the shits. And then he does some farting gags. I mean, it's a truism, isn't it? That that's a really good way to end any kind of interrogation of, of what you're doing. Just say, I shot myself and then people will immediately stand back. Yeah. Um, back with Emma, um, he shows her the separated wooden penis. It came off in my hand. Don't worry, it's happened to me a few times. Wink, says Emma. Yeah, they stick it back on with chewing gum. And then this is where we have the cameos from Simon Pegg and Julia Davis who watches the wooden cock struggles to stay in position. I feel if you're going to get those two into cameo, you can give them something better than just a, a little look, can't you? They're... I was, because I was looking at this, and I was thinking, couldn't they have, I would love to have seen those two characters be given bigger roles. Then we have like a point of view shot of someone in the in Simon's bedroom with a torch. The boys have got pizza, and they continue to plan the robbery. They hear some creaking, so Jeff goes off to investigate. Simon's eating his pizza with a knife and fork, which I think is a good character beat. But no, it turns out it's Kirsty, the kid from the beginning, who's stealing the portable TV. In fright, she drops it and it smashes, and Simon scolds her for robbing him. 
it's illegal. And she's like, so's robbing a bank. Um, and she knows this because it's written on the notice board. Yeah, and so they feel when they realize how uh, small the uh, air conditioning duct is that they need someone to get into, she's the only person who can fit. So she's suddenly needed by the team. She's in the gang. And we have this montage of them making gadgets for the robbery to some generic stirring music, a bit like the A-Team theme. Yeah, they do a recce of the bank, but how are they going to get get away with it? Simon's got an idea. So we have this thing about the cyclists that we saw earlier from the scene with Lena Headey in the police station when the protesters are there. Starring the guy as the head cyclist protester, the guy from Phoenix Nights, the inflatable salesman, who also turns up in the Gareth Cheeseman episode of Coogan's Run. That's right. He's, he's just got such a, a naturally funny voice, that guy, hasn't he? As soon as he shows up, you're like, oh, we're in safe hands here. I love this guy. It's always uh, easy to confuse him for Bobby Ball, I think. Yeah, but he's better than Bobby Ball. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's a disappointment when you get Bobby Ball. <laughs> and you wanted the guy from Phoenix Night. Exactly. It's just the way he goes, it's, you don't have to have it like that, Brian. It's Sammy Snake. And and that's so it's that scene where they have the magnificent seven style music is the is the when he's doing his um protest speech and they're trying to get them to change the time of the protest, aren't they? From a yeah. why are we having a protest on a weekday? Let's have it twelve PM on a Sunday outside the Clyde uh, Clydesdale Bank or the West Clyde Bank, I think it's West called. Clyde Bank is yeah, what it Clydesdale is. Clydesdale yeah. is a real bank, isn't it? They wouldn't have called it that. That's right. Yeah. So th- that's how they managed to get that cover for the bank robbery. So Colin shows Jeff, who's Stephen Wellington, that the virus will be sent through a link to a porn site. Um, but it's the kind of porn that no one would want to actually admit to watching. We cut to Titanic security, where an intense looking bald man clicks on the link. Sure as day follows night, a uh, lonely security man is going to click on a porn link that he gets sent, isn't he? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Emma is at D.I. Burton's flat having a beer and asks if there's any news on the headless corpse and the probation officer bloke. My note for this point is finally Stephen Delane's back. It's been far too long since he's been on screen. Yeah, um, exactly. And again, he's, he's in intense and he's menacing in this bit and obviously you see the accountant's head in his freezer in this yeah. scene as well. Yeah, Burton tells her that he's uh, well out of it. Uh, yeah, I, I like the the set design as well on here because there's not a lot to it, which kind of works. He's got loaded magazines on the coffee table. Well, it looks like Patrick Bateman's flat. Yeah. And it is, again, same, is that the same year, American Psycho? I think American Psycho 2000, is it, the year before? I had it 99 or 2000, yeah. so I think, I, I think it's somewhere around there. Yeah, definitely. Um, she tries to leave. He gets her to have one for the road with a vodka chaser. He grabs the body from the fridge, which is like you said, the severed head is there. And he asks her about a love life, which is non-existent. And then he, he sits down uncomfortably close to her on the sofa. And she tells him that she doesn't believe in workplace romance. And he starts to rub her thigh and she takes it off. He says, who said anything about romance? Yeah, yeah, Exactly. Tells him to stick what to what he's best at. And then she leaves. So we next have this thing of this toy fire engine that they're trying to set up to go inside the bank vault. And there's a load of stuff about this. And then we cue Simon is dressed like a teacher and Kirsty is dressed in a school uniform as they take a model of a piggy bank to the bank. And basically it's their way of getting the fire engine into the bank vault, which is a 
the gizmo. They're saying it's got £10,000 in to buy beds and wheelchairs for a local children's home. They have a bit of a to-do with the manager. And then it, George appears and says, oh, you know, thank you for all you've done for the children. This convinces us to put it in the, in the vault. Kirsty's wheeling it in. There's, there's a really funny line. I think it might be just before this when they're, when they're doing the testing of the of the fire engine. And that uh, he's talking about, oh, what sort of attitude? Because he's talking about, oh, you can't just give up on this. So but, what, how would that attitude have gone down in, in Star Trek 4? What's he saying? Star Trek 3. Oh, I'm sorry. We couldn't find him. I just found For some yeah. reason, I found that really funny. And, and then they're arguing over whether it's Star Trek 4 or 3. Yeah, yeah. It is going, it's Star Trek 3. It's, it's called The Search for Spock. Yeah. Because it's going, it's because Coogan and Simon's like, yeah, in Star Trek 4, we couldn't find him. And it's like, <laughs> just the way he says, oh, I'm sorry, we couldn't find him. Yeah. So, yeah, in this scene in, in the bank vault, Kirsty's wheeling it in. Um, it's told to wait outside. So she starts flirting with the bank manager and he looks uncomfortable. I mean, you know, a schoolgirl. Well, you're, you're, you're expecting him to. You're expecting him to go for it, aren't you? And then be yeah. really creepy at her. But actually, he rebuffs her, doesn't he? But yeah. that, that gives her enough time to uh, get the camera facing the right way. Yeah, definitely, which which works. Um, so now we're back at Simon's. They watch the footage back, but they've got a full coverage of the code because the bank manager puts his ass in the way. The gang start to fall out. With Colin asking why, you know, they're putting themselves in line for Simon. Jeff spots that the bank manager has a vault passkey written on the back of his hand. Hooray! Doorbell rings. It's Emma. Simon's lost for words and eventually invites her in. The gang tries to all look casual. He introduces them all along with her occupation and he tries to make out basically to her that they're his family. They're all like his cousins. She wants to know what they're doing in his living room. The part of a voluntary self-help group. Simon distracts her by complimenting her. Oh, you've got lovely knees. And um, she asks what <laughs> what he was uh, looking oh yeah because she mentions like basically what he was looking at in the bedroom mirror so she knows that he was watching her mm-hmm. when she was naked they kiss and end up undressing on an airbed in during the throes of passion emma spots the tools that they're being prepared for the bank robbery and asks simon what he's planning this kind of spoils the mood so he has to tell her the whole story well it's at this point where I'm, so now with obviously things things unraveling in terms of their plan this this Film more so than any doesn't necessarily mean it's it's better than our kind of top echelon films from so far. We'll we'll get into that obviously, but it it hmm. feels this is the one that feels most like a film at the start in terms of plotting and in terms of things happening to develop the plot and things uh, characters saying things that those characters would say. It, it all it yeah it is tightly plotted. Yeah, he tells the the whole story. Um, you know because. He would have told us sooner, but I'd, in his, I like his line where he goes, because I'd be in prison where I'd be buggered daily. Like the, <laughs> the pause on the daily is very good. Um, she asks him what, what the equipment is for, but he can't tell us, so she storms off. And then she's, so she, Emma's twigged. I think she's twigged earlier that D.I. Burton is not a great guy. Exactly. Yeah. And then, so she basically asks about the accountant's effects and who logged them. And it was D.I. Burton. So yeah, Emma checks the account's mobile phone number and Burton's number is in it. And I'm like, but has it, this, wouldn't this be logged as evidence? It just seems to like it's just lying around on someone's desk. It's a Nokia T10, isn't it, I think? Yeah. Old school phone. 
the gang pour champagne and toast to friendship. The doorbell rings, and there's D.I. Burton with a search warrant. Is followed by a number of police officers, including Emma Lena Hede. The head of the accountant is has made its way into the fridge. Yeah, they find a fake porn site. Burton makes some creepy remarks to Kirsty about her being fifteen. They're lovely at that age. Ooh, awful, awful man. Yeah, pilot. They're piling it on now, aren't they? With uh, him being detestable. Yeah, there's a bit where Jeff goes, "You're horrible." Yeah, I love that. I, I wrote that down as well. I liked that. That feels yeah. like it was um, it was improvised. Yeah, it works really well. Uh, Kirsty goes to the fridge and finds the head. She runs off with it, tosses it over the fence. A dog brings it back. Kirsty fights with the dog, launches the dog over the fence. It's the fakest dog I've ever seen. It's just a puppet. Yeah. It's a puppet. It's a it's a puppet. <laughs> the cops are going to look in the garden, so she put she hides her head down her dungarees. Burton wants to check the fridge, but to his surprise, nothing's there. He asks Simon to check the large pot that's cooking on the hob, and that's where the head is. The gang are now in the police station. Emma tells them that the solicitor is delayed. Simon tells Emma he needs to get out to clear his name. Emma's not impressed. Why are they all put, been putting a cell together? I tell you, the reason is, is so that they can do the next joke, which is Kirsty remraiding the uh, side of it. And it's get Kirsty in. Get Kirsty in, yeah. She manages to escape from two coppers at a petrol station by hiding a CD in a woman's bag. Um, yeah, get Kirsty in. D.I. Burton is... So all this is happening... Oh, she's got all the gear in the van as well as Kirsty. So you would have thought the police would have impounded it as evidence, but obviously not. I love the transition. Yeah, I'm loving this bit, the transition of the score going from this very John Barry style uh, Bond music reminiscent of um, You Only Live Twice. And then, but that, then that really segues into some more kind of synthy um kind of uh, 70 style Bond music in the style of uh, Marvin Hamlish. The, from the spy you love me and i would like to think that that's just me reading james bond into something but steve coogan such a such a big james bond fan i think that that's that's intentional yeah so she's got all the gear in the van when the police have confiscated it so di burton is receiving his bravery award at the same time and people are gathering for it the gang are now up on the roof opposite the bank and i yeah i put that the score reminds me of the uh, Lelo Schifrin soundtrack to Dirty Harry where it's got that kind of uh, bong is it bongos I, kind of... I think you're talking about the bit that I'm saying is reminiscent of Marvin Hamlish from um, The Spy Who Loved Me which yes very, both both pretty similar yeah exactly uh, yeah I feel like I mentioned Dirty Harry in every episode <laughs> that, we, that we do you love at Bond at and least, I love Dirty Harry at least one other Simon fires the, he's got a crossbow, he fires it across, creating a zip wire. George loses his hat in the process. On the roof, they wait for the alarms to sound. After a tense delay, they begin. The, we, we see the map on the wall that Titanic security flashing with a chap who looked at the pawn site there with his head in his hands. Because the pawn site's up on his uh, desktop and a naked lady is on it with a speech bubble that says, you have been screwed. Kirsty goes... Kirsty goes in through the air vent, which is uh, what she was brought in the gang to do. At the awards ceremony, Emma gets a message through on the radio to say that the four have escaped from custody. 
Burton wants to know what's going on. Back at the bank, the team have got inset masks on. I guess it beats having like Austin Powers and things like that. Well, it's kind of foreshadowed earlier on when they're doing their testing of the walkie-talkies and she's saying, uh, Lady Bird's it's a praying mantra. Yes. Because he's got True. a praying mantis mask on, doesn't he? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Colin, I like this bit where Colin jumps over the customer service desk and George is like in pursuit trying to do it. And by the time he gets over, Colin's already jumped back, uh, which is a great bit. In the vault, George starts to control the machine hidden in the piggy bank. Steve is outside dressed as a police officer being bothered by two old biddies on about a friend's doctor who has a beard and is out gallivanting in Spain. I thought that was very reminiscent of Nana from the Royal Family, which kind of makes sense given the Henry Normal connection. I like this bit as well where he's at the end of his tether and he just goes, what the fuck are you on about? <laughs> and they just like, he just walks off and they're just like gobsmacked. It's brilliant. Um, in the bank vault, there's a statue of the Greek goddess Athena. Well, well, yeah, so it is Athena, but for some reason he gives a really weird pronunciation. Yeah. Did you say Athenea or something Athenea, like that? Athenea, and I'm it's like, Athena. Athena. Yeah. Because I was like, am I going to butcher this as well? Um, Greek goddess slash uh, high street poster shop. (laughs) (laughs) The fire engine gets caught on Athena's statue and falls over. George asks her to to press a red button after Colin's had a go at him. Say, I told you, you know, this is a load of rubbish. Uh, Flight of the Valkyries kicks in, which I don't know. I don't think you can use Flight of the Valkyries anymore. That's my feeling. Um, 20 years ago, it's all right, isn't it? Maybe. Maybe I'm looking at it with modern eyes, Robin. We just all, yeah, anyway. <laughs> this is um, when we realise that George is a serial bigamist as well, isn't it? It's not that what his, uh, uh, what, it does what come his up. crime is. Yeah, yeah, because she says, gets cursed, he says, have any of you ever actually robbed a bank anymore? And he's like, no, I'm a serial bigamist. Did he say that? I just love getting married or something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so she presses this red button and this beach ball comes out and inflates it and pushes it back up and we're, we're back We're back in the game. Outside, the real police officer that was spotted earlier spots a zip wire and a bird is sat on top doing a shit. Um, yeah, so they, they managed to get into the safe. Just as the police show up, hundreds of protesting cyclists arrive. Steve radios in, so the police are here and they've got five minutes at the most. So oh, it's Jeff, isn't it? Sorry. Jeff radios in to say the police are here and they got five minutes at the most. Simon tries keying in the code, but it doesn't work because the backup system has reset the code. But in their time of need, who does appear? But Victor, he's back from the dead. And it's Omar Sharif, which is like the biggest coup of the entire film. And, and a little bit wasted on me as a 16-year-old because I didn't really, I'd have known him by name, but not necessarily yeah. to look at. Um but watching it with my partner who'd not seen it before, she was like, oh my God, it's Omar Sharif. So, you know, it probably did for yeah. older people watching it at the time. That would have been watching a, it again, a great reveal. Exactly. Watching it again, I was like, it's Omar Sharif. Yeah. I had that. I'd seen it, obviously seen it 20 years ago, but, and it, that obviously didn't have an impact until, well, what, how, when did I watch um, Lawrence of Arabia for the first time? It was like 17 or 18 or something. So it just goes to show that, He's good as well, isn't he? He doesn't need yeah. to do much, but he does it all incredibly well. Such a good actor. And it's 
the the kudos of having Omar Sharif in in this film. Yeah, he's he's all the scenes he's in as well. He's great. He brings so much gravitas to yeah. this performance as well. With without doing a lot, no, which yeah, is no, cool. He's, he's brilliant. Yeah, um, the police are upstairs and they've turned the alarm off. Victor tells them to try to. Victor tells them to try the alarm again, and it works. They get the case and retrieve the videotape. Colin opens the deposit box belonging to Burton. Victor's now gone. Emma tells Burton's number two that she'll go and check the vault. They find two holdalls with all the £20 notes in. George says the money's come from drugs, and it'll just end up going to the government who'll spend it on weapons of mass destruction. Such a 2001 joke. That had that, yeah. I guess weapons of mass destruction was big in the in the news at that point. I was thinking, oh, has that? Been? Because no, this was released before nine eleven, so That's a good they're point. not really taught. I mean, that 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 phrase isn't in the kind of uh, general parlance that it is six yeah. months later. That's an interesting, yeah. Because I just took it as two thousand and one, but this is like you say, it's before nine eleven. So I didn't realize that weapons of mass destruction was part of the lexicon or whatever at this time. So that's, yeah, it's, it's, a, it, it, it's ahead of the curve. Yeah. Uh, Simon tells them they can't take the money. You know, you're halfway up a mountain. Crime is an easy way to the bottom. He says, it's a callback from earlier, isn't it? Cause they're talking about that at the beginning. Yeah, exactly. Colin's exasperated. He's like, we're robbing a bank. Uh, Kirsty says that they can take the money and return it if they change their mind. And then Emma and her colleague are in the lift when the power goes off and she's stuck. Simon has to go back because he's left the tape. I'm like, would you really forget the bloody tape? For power the purposes comes... of plot, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. Again, one of the things I like least about these films where there's a plot contrivance, uh, the power comes back on. Simon runs past the lift as Emma gets out. In the vault, she spots the crisp packet that Simon was eating and she smirks to herself. Simon's made his escape. He ends up on top of a hanging light when he nearly drops his crossbow. Burton's number two is below. It nearly hits him. Emma spots the situation, distracts him by asking him out for a drink. The cop's thrilled. He gives her a couple of dates and she says that she's busy. Simon finally retrieves the, the crossbow and then she says that she's changed her mind. Women. And then walks off. Victor appears at the front uh, in front of Victor appears in front of the police dressed in a Titanic security overalls, lighting a cigar. He tells the police officer that he's done the job. The others jump out of uh, the window onto a giant inflatable. Simon has passed out on top of the light where he was early and a wasp has crawled up his nose. He sneezes it out and it goes into the number two's mouth and he swallows it. Again, this feels like we're going back into the territory of the roller coaster and that's a little bit Austin Powers as well. I feel that that scene as well. And then it's quickly followed, isn't it, by him doing his swinging into the toughened glass, yeah. which is quite a nice bit of slapstick. And as as we know from the research, he does well from at least one angle. He does that for real himself as well. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, yeah, it's Simon runs away with the uh, number two copper giving chase. Emma trips him up, letting Simon escape. He runs into the van. Her tripping up the cop is one bit I always remember from the Atomic Kitten video. I mean, we're going to get to this song, obviously, aren't we? Yeah. But, uh, the Atomic Kitten cover of Eternal Flame that's from the film and where they just haphazardly insert bits from the film into the Atomic Kitten video, and that's one of them. I always remember that bit. The back of the van opens up, and they're all on bicycles, dressed in suits. They make their getaway. Copper looks gutted, but Emma looks like she's buzzing. 
She's proper chuffed for him. Uh, then Jenny, Jenny Agatha turns up on a tandem. She escapes with Victor. Simon gets to the police award ceremony and bumps into John Henshaw's Cochrane on the stairs who spots a videotape. He, he goes into something about some a Polish... It's a Christoph, Christoph Kozlowski film. Yeah. About a, uh, what does he say, about a man that's uh, accused of something he didn't do or something and he, and he goes, I've seen it, it's shit. Yeah, I like that. I like that line. John Henshaw is another one of those people who could say anything and it'd be funny. Just, yeah. Such yeah, great for sure. Comedy performer. Uh, yeah, so he's chased by the by uh, the gangster's goons. They go off into this office and they have this sort of fight with office stationery where he eventually takes them out with, what is it, a, 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 a staple gun and then he gets one of those stamping things, you know, for like... Yeah. And he, he, he tries going at them with a with a desk fan as well, doesn't he? Yeah, it just felt like it went on a bit. Anyway, he's running down the corridor and he bumps into a policeman and, and drops the tape. Thinks that the man looks familiar. The man gives him his tape back. He move on. On stage, Burton's number two sneaks up and whispers something to him. Burton's cockiness looks like it kind of slides off his face a little bit in this point, which is good acting from uh, Stephen Delane. Simon gets attacked by Cochrane, who puts a gun to his head and asks where the tape is. Jeff appears and punches him, knocking him out. All the gang are here, and they give Simon the money. As they walk towards the hall, Burton and his police mate show up and reprimand them. Burton grabs the tape and tells his number two to destroy it. Emma slaps the cuffs on Simon um, and one onto her own wrists, and he asks where they're going, and then she's like, you tell me. So we see Burton get his medal. Simon enters the room holding Emma hostage with a gun pointed at her head. He tells the room that he's been wrongly accused of murder. I can't believe there's some people talking at the back. Um, please be quiet or I will shoot her in the head, he says. That's the, that's the memorable line, isn't it? I can't, I can't believe that people talking at the back. That was definitely in the trailer. And that just I think just anything that's reminiscent of Partridge, they tried to get in trailers and TV spots to, to sell this film. It's probably why it's so. He shows the room the money they got from Burton's safety deposit box. He tosses the money in the air and asks Burton to explain it. Burton says it's part of a sting where he's been posted as a corrupt policeman. You've just wasted two years of police time, Simon. So good. So good. Simon looks flummoxed. Coogan's really good in this bit as well because he genuinely looks like maybe maybe it's real. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. He well, looks flummoxed. Until we get to the old Trumpton bait and switch. Yeah, exactly. So he looks flummoxed at first, but spots the policeman he bumped into earlier and realizes it's Victor again. What about the tape, Simon asks. Cut to number two watching the tape only. It's Camberwick Green. Oh, is it Camberwick Green rather than Trumpton? Sorry. No, no, it's fine. I, I had to Google it because I was like, is it Chigley? Because I, I remember watching Chigley as a, li a little lad. I seemed it was Trumpton, but then of course Trumpton's about bloody. Uh, fireman, isn't it? So yeah, Camberwick Green makes four sense. Burton says, what tape? And then it appears on screen in front of everyone. The, the chief commissioner tries to arrest Burton, but grabs the gun that Simon had given to him and punches him in the stomach. Burton takes Kirsty hostage and points the gun at Simon, who says that killing him will achieve nothing and he'll just look silly. Tries to shoot Simon, but there's no bullets in it. Emma and Simon with their handcuffed fists together punch delay now and the crowd applause raptures the commissioner shakes simon's hand and thanks him burton num uh, is number two and cochran are putting a police van 
Victor, still dressed in a police uniform, tells the police officer that he'll look after the money. Victor and Jenny Agatha drive off in a police car. Jenny Agatha's underused in this film, I yeah, feel. Yeah, I think you're probably right. I think it is. She's literally just in there to go for everyone to go, oh, look, it's Jenny Agatha. She has a couple of funny lines, but yeah, no, not, not nearly enough. I thought she was in it a lot more as well. I, I'd misremembered. I thought she played more of a part in it. She says in the making of featurette that she did most of her stuff in one day. Ah, most of her scenes. In, well, I think that I think the scene, her first scene, is probably all done in one day. Then the the bits with her in the uh, in the heist, maybe on a well, almost certainly on a separate day. Yeah, no, definitely. Simon asks Emma to let him go, but she's lost the key. He asks George to fix it, but Emma mouths no at him. George bullshits that he won't be able to do it till the following morning. Simon takes off her police hat. Um, she takes off his glasses and they kiss. Uh, Simon doesn't close his eyes during the kiss. I notice, like a serial killer. It's a, it's a strange screen kiss. Yeah, yeah. But it does finish with one of the best lines of the film, which is, "Is that a gun in your pocket? No, it's my penis." And then they all dance to David Bowie, which really annoyed me. I just, just yeah, don't, don't don't finish a film like that. It's, yeah, it is annoying. It's, oh, it just comes across as a bit backslappy. Do you know what I mean? We're just going to dance to David Bowie for Heroes by Bowie for a well, bit, and it just break, breaking the fourth wall before the film's kind of technically over as well. I don't. Yeah, if, you, if you're having that, maybe is kind of um, something about Mary style credit inserts. Over the, I know it kind of begins over the credits, but it, I I don't know. There's something about the way it's done just doesn't doesn't work for me. No, and I then, agree. And then Bowie quickly is faded down and faded up is atomic kittens 2001 cover of eternal flame which is butchering a classic yeah uh the, the bangles he, yeah well I don't, I'm, a, I'm a big bangles fan guy um and I, that's a great song and yeah they do a really crap job <laughs> yeah. of it but for some reason i'm willing to let all that slide i think it's it, it works reasonably well and will always remind me of that film so what's your what's what's your what's your verdict, Guy? I I think I, I enjoyed it more actually than the first time I watched it. The the flaws are just as obvious as they were first time round. I mean, I probably had seen it one or two more times after that. I certainly haven't seen it for at least kind of eighteen, nineteen years. <clears throat> but I enjoy. I mean, I, I was actually I was. This is one of the episodes of this series that I've been looking forward to researching the most because obviously, because I love Steve Coogan and. Henry Normal so much. Um, and when it became kind of obvious that, yeah, yeah, there's a really good kind of through line from Coogan's run to to this, that felt like a good way of tying it together. Um, and actually, yeah, I enjoyed it a lot more than than I did. But, I mean, you've been looking into the legacy a little bit. Steve Coogan's been keen to kind of distance himself from it, hasn't he? Well, yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the things. So I, I had a look at that and... Coogan criticised his own performance in it, said it was demonstrative. The the script he wrote with Henry Normal, he said it should have been edgier and more substantial. And he claims that the execution was too broad. He said he wanted to create a fun little caper, but he concluded that he'd failed on that. Elsewhere, he did cite that the film is very popular with teenagers and that somehow he'd inadvertently made a film for kids. So I think he's... Kind of spot on with that. For me, I think I quite enjoyed it, but I do think it's quite generic. And I think there's just stuff in that 
it's just I, I want something edgier as well. You know, I think there's some jokes where you could maybe go quite dark, but at that point you're trying to make a film and get a big audience, so you exactly. don't want to well, they've that mastered to serve, haven't they? Whereby if they'd have gone done like a feature length version of Natural Born Quizzes or uh, uh, or a Handyman for All Seasons or something, you know, it would. It's just not. It's not going to get the audiences. So it's t- you are caught between a rock and a hard place. I, I think there's there's enough in it uh, for me to find it enjoyably funny most of the way to you know it's not not that long between gags that made me laugh or that, that mm. and it sags quite a lot in the middle like i say it suffers when Stephen delane's not on screen but i suppose like one of the other kind of like legacy speaking of Stephen delane he is one of the legacies of this film is he him and lena healy particularly i mean she's gone on to have such a massive career probably mm. nothing not necessarily anything to do with this film, but you know, it did kind of uh show her to a wider audience, I guess. Though I mean that was gonna be one of my one of my points on it. Um I guess with Lena Heda. I just want to say that you know, I touched it earlier about it being a bit like Johnny English. I, but also like it wants to be like an Ealing comedy or like a Peter Sellers film from the early sixties, like two way stretch, but don't think it has that kind of quintessentially British feel. I feel like at times it is trying to be too Hollywood. It is trying to, it doesn't manage to mix like Edgar Wright's films that a few years later would do where you manage to mix in kind of Hollywood tropes with British kind of sensibility. And I think that's something that it misses the mark on. I might, I might uh, suggest as well that one of the other kind of um, legacies of this film is, is that Coogan and Normal obviously went on to shape the stuff that they were making a lot more by creating Baby Cow. And then obviously Baby Cow is, has been so integral in British comedy, both TV and, and film subsequently. Um, so, I, yeah, I think they, they'd certainly uh, learned lessons from making this film and say, okay, well, this is how we're going to have to approach things differently and this is how we're going to have to take more control, more importantly. Yeah, I mean, yeah, so... I think with Baby Cow, it's interesting that they would do... I think they're better known for the work on TV rather than film. They were going to do that a lot of Coogan's other work, like 24-Hour Party People, Cock and Bull Story, The Trip and everything. But I think you look at the TV stuff, it's The Mighty Boosh, Gavin and Stacey, Nighty Night, Marion and Jeff. I mean, that's just to name a few. I think with what you were saying about Lena Headey earlier, I don't feel that this... It led her to do other things. It doesn't I, really inform her performances after this, does it really? No, because I think she'd been around since the early to mid-90s. Obviously, we've been doing stuff that we mentioned before. And then after this, she does like the Brothers Grimm and 300 and Sarah uh, Connor Chronicles. So it feels like she's always kind of doing something. Oh, other comedy-wise, she's in Fighting With My Family as well, which is quite an enjoyable, oh, yeah. fluffy, fluffy... Um, Stephen Merchant comedy. This doesn't bode well for Coogan's career, I think, as well. 24-Hour Party People is the first great film that Coogan does. Yeah, it's a turning point, that, isn't it, for sure? Yeah. And I think, like we said earlier, I think his film career has been mixed, and I don't think it's probably shown the promise that his TV work has, has done. And that's why he probably keeps going back to TV, because... I think he probably has more control over to do what he wants in TV and doesn't have the sort of 
paymasters that he has to keep happy and can can do what he likes doing. For sure, yeah. And I, I, I'm, you know, I'm pretty certain that we're going to talk about 24-hour party people and obviously Alpha Papa uh, more in the future. So we, mm. we should maybe keep our powder dry a bit about those. But that's, yeah, certainly yeah. A, a turning point for him. Ranking guy, are we going to disagree on this? Because I actually feel, when we talked about it off air last night, I was like, yes, this has to go in at number one. It's the one I've enjoyed the most so far. It's the one that's most coherent as a film. But actually, maybe I'll, if you vehemently feel that this is better, than, uh, that Mike Bassett is better than this, then I'm not going to argue too much on that. I think we can say it's, it's definitely better than Lesbian Vampire Killers, Man About the House and Staggered, right? Yeah, I think you've probably more convinced me to go the other way because I was thinking about this when we were talking about it. And I was thinking, I think, the, I don't know, it's a tough one because there's definitely more, probably more things in Mike Bassett that I enjoy where I think back, like Mike Bassett is a much more memorable film where there's things that I look back on like Three Cheers for Ramirez and and those sort of bits that really kind of still amuse me. Like I, I, I'm laughing now thinking about those bits, but I think this is a film as a coherent you know piece of cinema works better and i've enjoyed talking about it with you and it's actually going through it i think that the acting's probably better although ricky thomason's brilliant in mike bassett but i like the characters stephen delane's brilliant coogan's pretty good in it although like said earlier i think he's sort of i'd like to see him do a bit more character work than he's doing i think yeah for sure and but yeah i think that it is even though most of the jokes are probably funnier than Mike Bassett or the Mike Bassett certainly has more laugh out, laugh out loud moments. This is a much better written film. I yeah, I would agree. So I think we put it, I'm happy to put it as number one so far in our list. Let's, let's stick it at the top then. So now with a new number one, that just leaves us with our quiz. And um, I have written you five questions about Henry Normal and you have written me five questions about Lena Headey. Yeah. In which English city was Henry Normal born? He was born in Nottingham. Correct, Guy. One for you. Lena Headey recently starred in the drama White House Plumbers, but which historic event is it about? It's about the Watergate scandal. It is, Rob. One point. What is the name of the Portuguese singing superstar created by Coogan and Normal, for which Normal co-wrote the special phenomenon? Tony Farina... That is correct, Guy, and I love Tony Farina. Which um, first feature in a popular horror franchise did Lena Headey star in in 2013? Oh, we were just talking about this off mic earlier, weren't we? We were. Sorry about, and, and if my partner hadn't been watching it, I probably would have forgotten that she's in The Purge. She is in The Purge, so that's another point to you, Rob. Two out of two. In his early career as a poet, which band did Henry Normal tour with? God. Um, I have mentioned them earlier on in the show. Pulp? Correct, Pulp. Lena Headey was a voice actor in a reboot of which 80s children's cartoon? Is it? I was reading her IMDb earlier on. Is it Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? No, she did do about that, but that's not the one I'm looking for. Uh, okay, yeah, because it wasn't an animated one, was it, that she was yeah. in? Yeah. Danger Mouse. Oh, of course. Right. Of course she's in Danger Mouse. Okay, so it's 3-2 to you, Guy. Mm. In which episode of Coogan's Run did Henry Normal make a cameo appearance? Was it the Gareth Cheeseman, Death of a Sales... The 
Death of what, a Salesman. Death of a Salesman. No, he's in a handyman for all seasons. He plays <sighs> Ernest Moss's brother, Harry Moss, who's been working on the hovercraft. Okay, so this is for me to draw level. Yeah, so in the film 300, which queen did Lena Headey play? Uh, Helen of Troy? No, Gorgo. Okay. Gorgo. Is Helen of Troy even a queen? Anyway, so it's still 3 2 to you, Gar. Well, this would be to win it. Uh, which legend of British comedy is Henry Normal currently touring with, doing, quote, poetry, stories, jokes, QA, and other fun? Oh, God, legend of British comedy. Um, I don't know. Um, only because we mentioned it. I, I don't even, I, I know it's not him, but I'm going to say Stuart Lee, just. It's not, it's Nigel Planer. Oh, wow. To make this three all. Lena Headey grew up in Huddersfield, but in which village? Oh, well, well we've already said it. Let's say Milnesbridge. No, Shelley. Shelley. And she went to Shelley College. Ah, that's annoying. Okay, so you've won this one, guys. 3-2. It's still nice and close, though, going in to our next episode, which I am very excited by, Guy. So our next episode is going to be on the rise and rise of Michael Rimmer, and we will have a special guest who is Tom Selinski from the Best Pick podcast. One of my favourite po- Well, no, let's not be about the bush. It is my favourite podcast. You know, for any film fans, you should give it a listen. Uh, it's going to be great to have him on. Excellent. Can't wait to have Tom on. I'm really looking forward to talking about the rise and rise of Michael Rimmer because I'm a massive fan of Peter Cook. So it's going to be great looking at his kind of, I guess, only solo feature film that didn't feature uh, Dudley Moore and with him. you've seen it before. I've never seen it. So I'm mm. looking forward to uh, watching that this week. And uh, of course, that film was written by John Cleese as well. So it yeah. promises a lot. Thank you for listening to BritCon Goes to the Movies with Guy Walker and Rob Heath. Thanks to Mark Phillips for the podcast artwork. You can get in touch with us by emailing BritConGoes at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram and Twitter as at BritConGoes. And don't forget to check out the BritCon Goes to the Movies playlist on Spotify and Amazon Music. Please like, subscribe and review so that others can find the podcast. See you next episode.